Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is the podcast that you need to listen to. It is the GU Power Hour with Neeraj Agrawal and Rana McKay, top two GU oncologists in the United States and globally, discussing with me what intrigued them during the ASCO 2023 meeting that was held in Chicago in June 2023. We are going to talk about the abstracts that were that were nearly practice changing in prostate cancer, kidney cancer, and urothelial cancer. We're going to get their insights, their opinions, and what do they believe the next steps are pertaining to these diseases. We'll talk about advanced stage disease, early stage disease. This is the hour that you do not want to miss learning everything pertaining to updates in GU Oncology from Drs. McKay and Agrawal on Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm very grateful to my guests who have spared very valuable time of their extremely busy schedule to be with you, the listeners who have supported Healthcare Unfiltered for almost three years, and to hear their thoughts and their opinions about top GU abstracts. Uh, don't forget, by the way, to subscribe to Healthcare Unfiltered, write a brief review, and rate the podcast. If you like what you hear, give it five stars, and I'm very grateful to that. Refer friends and colleagues to the podcast. There are many episodes, many topics, and I'm sure some of the topics will be appealing to your friends and to your colleagues. I appreciate your referral. You can find the podcast pretty much every where you consume podcasts. Also, you can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, and on my website, chadinabhan.com. Of course, I'm going to plug my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. Check it out. I appreciate your support, and I would love for you to let me know how I'm doing. And for being a local, a loyal listener, I'm more than happy to send you the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. Without further ado, the amazing, wonderful gurus, the GU Power Hour with Drs. Agrawal and McKay from Huntsman Cancer Institute and UCSD, respectively. This is going to be a lot of fun, not because we're going to talk uh, GI, right? We're doing GI today or what? <laughs> we can do it and I can do anything. <laughs> you can right? do GI. I mean, MSI yeah. high colon cancer. Here you go. No, I'm Yeah, kidding. just, you know, do, do, do IO or something. But we're going to do GU, but we're going to make it fun right? without music or anything, right? Neeraj, I mean, I think you, by the way, Rana, did you know I used to always call Neeraj Neeraj? And then I learned, I don't know if you know that, that the proper pronunciation is Neeraj. And Neeraj, because, just so you know, Shadi. you call Rana Reina, and yeah. it's not Reina. Her, it's her pronunciation is Rana. So basically, well, I'm teaching you both how to pronounce the other but person's it is, name. It is for my American professional world, it's Reina. That's don't like give, my... Don't give them an excuse. They must call you by your real name. No, no, but then it gets it's it gets complicated. Confusing. It's yeah. confusing. It's yeah. like, you know. Oh my God! I mean, she like yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Shadi, I can tell you when I came to US in the University of Iowa, I was telling everybody to say Neeraj, and then it becomes Nareej, and then become Garage or whatever. Oh, and I, I frankly, I decided it's not worth my time. 
And Niraj yeah. is when Maha called me Niraj for the first time, like, yeah, this is this is good. I mean, everybody could say that. Yeah. So Unfortunately, I, I Maha is not on Twitter or she, I don't I don't think she listens to podcasts. Yeah. But but people who are Indian, they know exactly what you mean. And if you call no, Niraj I Niraj, I'm like Rena. I don't want to spend time on this. I got fed up, and I say, you know what? Niraj is best. Rhymes well. And Monty, you, Rena, call me Nira. Rena calls me Niraj no, too many I times. I call you. I call you Niraj. Are, I'm gonna call Rana Rana because that's her name. I mean, that's she fine. may refuse. <laughs> doesn't really. Doesn't really. It's not. She's not refusing. She's just no. trying to make it keep it simple, right? I think for listeners, they're starting to enjoy this podcast because yes. they thought they're gonna go right away into prostate bladder, and here we are, just you know, making. You're sure recording this or what? Of course, I'm recording. No, this. you cannot. I am. It is recording. I just, it's oh, you just, have to start yeah. from the scratch. I'm not starting. This is like recorded. <laughs> the nice thing about healthcare and filtered uh, Neeraj is it's completely unfiltered. Like I don't edit, I don't do anything. Like everything goes right away on the air. And here we are, we're going to do an introduction, first of all, to the listeners who are and to the viewers. This is a lot of fun right here. And uh, Rana, <laughs> do you want to introduce yes, yourself to folks, to the maybe two people who don't know who you are? Oh my God. I don't know about that. It's uh, you have to disregard the lighting here. I'm not really sure what's going on. No, the no, light's you're, you're still good. out here. Yeah. So uh, it's uh, Raina McKay from <laughs> UCSD. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on uh, with you, Chatty and Neeraj and, you know, and, really uh, enjoy. Rana, what's your favorite book in the world? Uh, Toxic Exposure. Very good. Very good answer. <laughs> Neeraj, do you want to introduce yourself to the one person yeah, who probably is... doesn't know who you are? Well, uh, my name is Niraj Agarwal. I'm a geomedical oncologist at the Huntsman Cancer Institute, University of Utah. And before you ask, my favorite book is Toxic Exposure. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Hey, so a few weeks back, we finished ASCO at the beautiful city of Chicago. And what we thought is we're going to talk a little bit about what's been presented, what's happening in the world of geo, because... It's gotten pretty complicated, let's honest. I mean, let's be honest. It's really gotten very, very complicated. And we thought we'll just pick a few abstracts for prostate, few abstracts for urothelial, few abstracts for kidney. What should we start with? Let's do prostate. And I'm thinking we should focus a little bit on these like that are a little bit more have clinical implications, a yeah. little bit more of changes. And Niraj, you were obviously one of the stars of the show, I mean, on the podium. And I always love your enthusiasm when you present and you talk. And, you know, the nice thing about your um, your presentation, honestly, is it like even if for folks who are listening who may not have kept up to date with all of the trials, you actually give this nice background and a couple of things that, you know, set the level straight. So let's start by a couple of abstracts from GU, prostate cancer, and uh, you pick the first one, Neeraj. Yeah, so I'll start with the one of the most common tests which are which is used in patients with prostate cancer, which is PSA level, and uh, how it can really help us in decision making, in designing clinical trials, and so on. So I'll pick up two abstracts uh, which were presented by. Dr. Praful Ravi from Dana-Farber, uh, so abstract 5002 for the for our audience who may want to look up after the meeting. And it was uh, the led by senior author was Dr. Chris Swinney, and they used this ISCAP database, so in intermediate uh, endpoints for prostate cancer, and looked at patients who achieve the PSA level, PSA nadir of 0 0.1, 
versus who do not achieve a PSA of 0.1. In the context of localized prostate cancer, receiving radiation therapy with or without androgen deprivation therapy. So the best part about this study was the magnitude of data set. You are talking about 10,000 plus patients who were treated with, uh, you know, different timeline, of course, but uh, who were treated with uh, radiation therapy plus minus short-term androgen deprivation therapy or long-term androgen deprivation therapy. And I'll come to the bottom line here to make it really time efficient for our listeners. If you achieve a PSA of 0.1 or less undetectable PSA, you have a much better survival versus if you do not achieve a PSA of 0.1. And it was striking, striking to see that five-year metastasis-free survival, prostate cancer-specific mortality, overall survival, all very nicely correlated with whether you achieved a PSA of 0.1 or not. And most of these patients, even though patients uh, were, uh, there were some patients like one third patients or quarter of patients only had radiation therapy. But I think these findings mostly apply to radiation therapy with androgen deprivation therapy. And how does it impact our practice? If you don't achieve a PSA of 0.1 within six to seven months of radiation therapy, I think it's time to prepare. You're much more likely to develop metastasis. You're much more likely to have failure of uh, you know, disease progression, failure of therapy, and it requires more like closer monitoring, if you will. And also, I think these are the patients who need to be enrolled on clinical trials. So instead of putting all patients on clinical trial, look for patients who did not achieve a PSA of 0.1, which are like 70%, 80% patients, focus on them so that you can get to the intermediate endpoint of metastasis-free survival earlier. Trial size can be smaller and you can get to the endpoints faster. I was going to ask Rana, Rana, basically, this is interesting. There's nothing you're going to do about this today because it's prognostic, but I like the point that Neeraj mentioned clinical trials. So, so what I'm hearing is that there's 70% of patients who undergo radiotherapy plus ADT who might not achieve that neither. And those 70%, you might like randomize them to intervention versus placebo type of thing or? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is really uh, uh, provocative because it's thinking about adaptive-based trials and how do you therapy escalate for people that need it? How do you therapy de-escalate for people who don't need it? We've already kind of established the prognostic significance of six-month PSA for people with MHSPC, and now actually trials are being designed through um, various entities to look at how do we escalate therapy for those people that don't achieve a, um, you know, a undetectable PSA, and you could think of the same sort of strategy in the localized setting, like does everybody need to be given abiraterone a la stampede for high risk disease, or can there be people who actually, you know, can they get by without it? So I think um, this is provocative. We don't have the answer today, but I think this could potentially be used as a biomarker for selection of uh, unfavorable population for future studies. And Shadi, I just want to just add another abstract by Susan Hallaby. And again, it was uh, led by Chris Sweeney as a senior author from StopCap M1 analysis. Again, a very similar story. It was in the context of metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. 
And this was an older era of uh, trials where patients only received ADT or docetaxel chemotherapy with ADT. And again, very similar theme, patients who were able to achieve a PSF 0.1 or 0.2 nanogram per mil within six, four, four to seven, four to seven months of starting treatment, they were much less likely to die compared to patients who did not achieve a PSF 4 nanogram per mil. In fact, hazard ratio for death for 0.1 PSA or 0.2 PSA level compared to those who did not achieve a PSA of 4 nanogram per mil was 75%. So 0.75, I'm just using the ballpark for the listeners, but 75% are uh, more likely to die if your PSA is more than four. So again, it tells me that the biology of disease in these patients is quite different and they need more targeted therapies. They need to be preferentially be put on clinical trials or enrolled on clinical trials. And we see a similar theme. We saw data from Titan trial, data from SWAG-1216 also presented by Mamta uh, Parekh from SWAG, like this is our trial. Again, very similar theme. I think it's time that we design trials for those patients specifically who do not achieve achieve this uh, level of PSA after a certain time point. I mean, simple test, significant prognostic value opens the door for many patients in clinical trials. Two excellent selections in terms of for prostate cancer. Ronnie, you want to take a stab at another prostate cancer abstract? Sure. I'm, I can uh, carry on with prostate yeah, cancer. And on. I thought Mirena will be handling the we'll kidney get Rana and ready for the kidney, yeah. The kidney <laughs> and So just because, you know, I Rena is after a long clinic day and we that's what we discussed. She only so, saw a hundred patients. I mean, her like I don't know about well, that. You know. Yeah. So I can Shadi, I can go to the biomarkers, right? Homologous yep. recombination repair defects, which was the yep. big story during ASCO. Obviously, uh, multiple trials presented recently. So I'll start with the abstract uh, by Dr. Almos, David Almos uh, from Spain, who basically looked, presented the data from hundreds of patients accrued from different clinical trials who were testing for homologous recombination repair mutations. And the bottom line was patients who have BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations, and who have like other HRR mutations, they are, and this was in metastatic casted resistant prostate cancer. So patients who enrolled on clinical trial and they had BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations and other HRR mutations, their time to progression on first therapy, time to like radiographic progression, uh, overall survival, time to progression on subsequent therapy, all were significantly inferior if they had BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. I wish they had also looked at all HRR mutations compared to non-HRR mutations, but I think they are, I'm sure they are working on it. And if they are not, I'm sure Rena will present a abstract in next uh, six months on that one. But we are also working on it. So trying to see how these patients, why these patients are, how much aggressive these patients' disease are. Another example from a recently concluded clinical trial, which we just presented in ASCO2, my uh, uh, colleague and co-chair of the study, Dr. Karim Fizazi, presented the data from TALAPRO2 trial. This is a phase three trial, only in HRR-selected patients. So patients who are 400 patients, 
who were biomarker positive in first-line MCRPC, treatment with enzalutamide plus talazoparin, improved radiographic progression-free survival in a dramatic fashion compared to enzalutamide alone. It was a 55% reduction in risk of progression or death. The PSA progression-free survival, so if you look at time to PSA progression was 11 months in the enzalutamide arm and 28 months in the combination arm. So 17 month delay in PSA progression on treatment with uh, talazopari plus enzalutamide. That's amazing results. Um, yeah. But uh, it just makes me ask the question as you as you respond, uh, Niraj, and maybe Rana also could comment a little bit. Does this mean every prostate cancer patient today, you must know the HRD status? Yeah. 100%. I, yeah. So I'll come to Rinabas, but let me just finish that first part. The reason I brought up that example of the control arm survival with enzalutamide, you're looking at 11-month progression-free survival for PSA, 13-month radiographic progression-free survival, compare that with the data of Prevail trial, where radiographic or progression-free survival was 21 months with enzalutamide. So what Dr. Almos and colleagues presented from Spain, and what we also saw exactly very similar picture in the TALAPRO2 trial, that patient, if you have HRR mutation, especially BRCA1, BRCA2, your response to standard of care therapy is going to be quite inferior and you need something more beyond that. So Reina, please go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you on that. No, I mean, I think that absolutely every single man with prostate cancer with advanced or metastatic disease should undergo germline testing. I think the, um, you know, magnitude, uh, profound or propel, I should say, and Talapro2 actually only reinforce that as opposed to, you know, I think there was a worry that we're now, we have done so much hard work to get sort of the community and, and academia on board with testing. And now we're coming up with all these unselected studies. But I think the data from these studies has only reinforced the need for additional testing for all men with um, advanced um, uh, prostate cancer. So I think it's critical somatic and germline testing. Neeraj, is there like the ENZA plus PARP inhibitor versus ENZA alone? Why not just do PARP inhibitor alone and forget the ENZA altogether? That's a fantastic question. And we did a trial. So Maha Hussain led the trial. As you know, um, uh, Dr. Hussain has led many trials, but this was one of the trials which I like more than many others because it is going to address one of the burning questions of the field, which is in the field, which is monotherapy with ARPI. Then you combine ARPI with PARP inhibitor. And then you have PARP inhibitor as a third arm, right? Yeah. So we are going to show the results. We'll be publishing, manuscript is being written. The data were presented in ASCO 2022 meeting, but we are hoping, we I will show you more compelling data. Why yeah. combination is more important than either monotherapy alone? Dramatic improvement in uh, outcomes. With the caveat, uh, with the another point I'd like to make, 40%, Dan, George, and team has done a fantastic job of working with flat RN database and showing that 40% patients with metastatic CRPC or for that matter, metastatic prostate cancer don't see second line of next line of therapy in the real world. So all of that put together and the uh, interdependency based on scientific rationale, 
I think the combination of ARPI plus a PARP inhibitor is going to be the key for patients who are HRR selected in MCRPC setting and hopefully in MCSPC setting. But to the Rena's point, I think testing remains important. Even though we are able to show overall survival benefit, a long-term survival benefit, even in unselected patients, because degree of the magnitude of uh, benefit it still varies in selected patients versus unselected patients or negative patients. So if, if patient is negative for HRR mutation, I may have other therapies which are competing yeah. versus if they're selected patients, PARP inhibitor-based combination may be the best treatment for them. Very good point. This is really a good point in terms of um, the, the rationale of why you're doing this. So we've gotten three abstracts or four abstracts for prostate. What else you've got for us? I don't know how much time we have. I, I really want to have full, equal, or more time for Rena because. Okay, let's do a couple of kidney. Let's do a let's couple of kidney ones. Okay. And then we'll go back to prostate. That sounds awesome. So I, it was a really exciting meeting. I have to say, probably the most impactful, maybe this is me being biased, but probably one of the most impact, impactful studies that was presented were the results of the phase three. Um, contact three study. So this was a critically important study. It was presented by Tony Shawiri, LBA, um, at the meeting with senior author, Dr. Powell. Um, this was a study looking at the combination of atezolizumab plus cabozantinib versus cabozantinib alone for people who had progression on a, a prior immune um, checkpoint um, inhibitor. The study was designed for patients with clear cell RCC. What's unique about the study is it actually did enroll patients with non-clear cell histology, specifically papillary, chromophobe, and unclassified. Um, patients with chromophobe had to have sort of a sarcomatoid component to enroll. And patients um, need to have had radiographic progression on or after receipt of an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And they could have received that immune checkpoint inhibitor either as adjuvant first line or second line. And the immune checkpoint inhibitor was the immediately preceding line of therapy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this was a negative study. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. The curves are completely overlapping. Hazard ratio 1.03, um, median PFS of 10.6 months in the combination arm compared to 10.8 months in the Cabo arm. And um, when you look at the subset analyses, um, you know, uh, subgroups by histology, IMDC, prior lines of therapy, I mean, there was no subgroup that seemed to do better. Um, interim analysis for overall survival was also, um, you know, negative. The stratified hazard ratio was 0 0.94. You know, I think that these data were really quite, it was really excellent to see these data because I know in clinical practice, you know, Dr. David Braun gave an excellent discussion on this um, abstract. And in clinical practice, you know, he had conducted a very scientific, you know, Twitter poll to kind of get at, you know, what are people actually doing in clinical practice? Probably 30% of people that, voted on his little poll and and we sort of have anecdotes of this like to layer on the TKI after somebody's progressing on their IO they're on nevoipi maybe they're progressing and they kind of layer on the you know I the TKI onto the um IO backbone and I think what this study showed us is that really there's at least with a PDL1 inhibitor which is a tezolizumab there was really no um benefit to that now whether a different PDL1 inhibitor will perform better, I think is going to be interesting um, to see. But I think these data were really quite provocative. And I, I think that 
um, and actually did inform practice as to what not to do. You know, what also was really striking with this data set is it truly like captured in the modern era the efficacy of cabozantinib in the second line setting. I mean, this was a, essentially a trial for IO pretreated individuals. And if we look at the primary PD rate, you know, primary PD with Cabo monotherapy, 5.1% in the refractory setting. I mean, that's tremendous. So I think Cabo Zantinib is really an excellent um, drug. And, you know, even the PFS data that I shared with you, PFS, again, 10.8 months in the refractory disease setting with a TKI. That's really um, so, Rana. I, I like I like this study a lot. I, I was I was <clears throat> surprised by how effective Cabo was. Although, um, again, w what you just mentioned, but you you just um, talked about something that a lot of clinicians out there still struggle with. You know, are all of these PD ones, PDL ones interchangeable? And, and the reason I ask that. Because there are situations in other diseases, like in bladder sometimes, or even in other types of cancers, where you see in lung cancer, you see Pembro has particular activity, but Nevo does not have the same activity. Yeah. And you could blame it on the design of trials and things like that. But but I think in this trial, what you can conclude is the addition of atezolizumab to cabozantinib is not needed, for sure does not provide benefit. Can you extrapolate and say adding any type of IO is also unhelpful? Is that enough? You think we can't obviously no. do studies for every single IO under the sun no. because there's so many. No, I completely agree with you. And I don't think that all these PDL, PD1, PDL ones are created equally. I mean, we already, for one, atezolizumab has no approval at in at all in kidney cancer. In every single study where atezolizumab was tested in combination in the adjuvant setting, um, you know, frontline in combination with bevacizumab, and in every setting, atezolizumab has just fallen short of the mark. So I think, um, I don't think that all these drugs are created equally. I do think the PD-1 inhibitors, mechanistically, they are different than the PDL one inhibitors. There is another study being conducted called the TNEVO-2 study that is looking at the combination of nivolumab with tavazinib versus tavazinib alone, answering a very similar question. So I think hopefully we will have some insights from that trial of what is the role of PD-1 inhibition in you know, immune checkpoint inhibitor pretreated individuals. But yeah. I think these data were quite interesting. Niraj, any comment on the contact trial? I agree with Reina 100%. This was a practice changing trial for me because it changed my practice. It was common, even NCCN guidelines did not not endorse the use of, say, Lenpem, Lenvatinib, Pembrozolimab, or Cabozantinib, and Nivolimab after disease progression on an IO-based therapy. So what was happening in the community is that pretty much everyone was continuing, not everyone, there's nothing like everyone, there's nothing like 100%, but there were many patients who were continuing IO followed by IO. And think about the cost, think about the side effect burden on the society. And I think atezolizumab obviously may be on the weaker side compared to say pembrolizumab or nivolumab, but complete absence. There was not a flicker of benefit yeah, yeah, with atezolizumab yeah. when combined with cabo. I think 
my practice has changed. I no longer continue IO if I'm switching the TKI or if I'm going from EP-NEVO to cabozantinib, I use cabozantinib alone. Let's do another kidney. All right, other kidneys. Let's see. Maybe we can lump together updates on the CLEAR trial and the um, Keynote 426 trial. So this is um, the abstract for um, uh, CLEAR was presented by Dr. Bob Mozer, abstract 4502. And then the abstract for Keynote 426 was presented by Dr. Brian Reaney, LBA 4501. And these were updated analyses from two landmark IO VEGF studies. So the clear data were the four-year updates, the um, Keynote uh, 426 were the five-year updates. And I think one of the biggest questions, you know, when we have somebody before us with renal cell carcinoma and their newly diagnosed metastatic disease or kind of have metastatic disease, the big clinical question is, well, do I do IO-IO or do I do IO-VEGF? And this is something that we continue to ten, contend with in the clinic. Um, you know, all the data for short-term short gains with IO-VEGF um, are excellent. The response rates are higher. The PFS rates are higher. Um, certainly, there's an improvement in OS, but there's always kind of been this questionable about durability with the IO-IO. While the response rates may be a little bit lower um, and the PFS is a little bit lower, there seems to be kind of a tail on the PFS curve over time that maybe there are people that are deriving long-term benefits. So you're constantly struggling between that long-term and short-term gain. So I think with these data, we saw the final OS get presented for LEMPEM, the four-year follow-up data. Um, we see medians being hit with LEMPEM at 53.7 um, you know, uh, uh, months and sunitinib was at 54.3, but I think when you look at the hazard ratio, uh, 0.76, so statistically significant, um, in continued statistically significant improvement um, over time with longer follow-up of LENPEM. I think it was good to see the LENPEM data because I think, you know, um, with the shorter follow-up, the, the curves were kind of crossing towards the tail of the curve, but there was a lot of censoring that was going on there. So I think, you know, seeing the curves kind of mature over time and kind of demonstrating that continued benefit of LENPEM was excellent to see. I think when we look at the, um, you know, Keynote 426 data, again, now this is five-year follow-up. We have the longest follow-up for IO, um, you know, VEGF from 426. There definitely is a consistent benefit over time. The hazard ratio there is 0 0.84. Um, so definitely continued benefit over time. I think that once we've seen um, this data, there there is still a question of long-term durability. We haven't really seen the, you know, flattening, if you will, of sort of the curve over time. And, um, you know, I think that, um, again, in the discussion also by David Braun and kind of discussion in the room, it was a very lively discussion in the room with Mike Atkins coming to the podium and really kind of calling into question sort of the, the role of IO VEGF in the frontline setting, given the lack of durability. So it was actually a really um, entertaining meeting. But I think these both of these regimens continue to show long-term benefit. I think the question of durability- But, but you have to remains. choose, but right? You have to choose. Like yeah. when you have a patient in front of you you gotta make a choice. Are you able to stratify based on the risk stratification, bone meds? Not like what? I mean, how do you make a choice if you have both options available? You know, I think the discussion that I have with my patients is short-term gain over long, put over over the potential for long-term gain. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that 
you know, don't necessarily have the choice. You need to have a response right away. And I think those are the patients who I select for IO VEGF strategy. And, and there's probably more similarities than there are differences among the three life prolonging regimens. You know, but another thing that I think David had in his discussion was there was actually a um, patient survey that was conducted through one of the patient advocacy organizations about what are the goals of treatment for patients in the advanced setting. And the number one thing for many people was potential for cure, long-term dealability, long-term, you know, so I think it's, it's important to have that question because I think right now the data for Nevo Ipi look really excellent in the long term, you know. Yeah, just do maybe uh, or or uh, like maybe a couple of urothelial ones. We don't want you know to leave urothelial out of the oh, no. equation. I don't yeah. mind taking a stab at some of the urothelial ones. So we had some really exciting data that were um, prevented presented on the Norse trial. So there was kind of a focus on FGFR inhibition. FGFR alterations are present and probably around. Um, 20% of patients with advanced or metastatic UC, though I think, you know, I know that's the number that's sort of put out there. I think in clinical practice, do we, I know in my practice, I don't have 20% that have FGFR alterations, though I know that that number is always kind of quoted. And so there was a study that was conducted, the NORS trials, a phase two study enrolling patients with metastatic UC that were ineligible for cisplatin-based chemotherapy um, that had FGFR, select FGFR alterations, mutations, or fusions. Um, this was a frontline trial of patients not having received any prior systemic therapy, and patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive ertavitinib. That was initially started at eight milligrams, and then you can kind of dose titrate up to nine milligrams or ertafitinib plus cetrilimab, and cetrilimab is a PD, yet another PD-1 inhibitor. And um, the primary endpoint of this study was objective response, and we actually saw that you know, both arms had pretty respectable objective response rates. The objective response rate with monotherapy was 44%. With combination therapy, it was at 54.5% with an increased number of um, partial response, or I'm sorry, complete responses that were observed. You know, I think it's, you know, hard to kind of gleam regarding which one of the two regimens is associated with a better profile. Um, the PFS data looked uh, quite uh, provocative. The PFS data for the combination showed that the PFS was 11 months versus 5.6 months um, uh, with monotherapy. But again, this was a small phase two. So I, th I think this data, you know, were important regarding the role of ertafitinib. You know, I think right now it's largely being used in the refractory setting. So this was a frontline study in biomarker selected patients who are ineligible for cisplatinum. So and, and that and that and that's interesting. I guess to simplify it to to listeners, uh maybe in frontline metastatic urothelial cancer, has anything changed in your approach to treatment in the frontline setting after ASCO 2023? So something exciting that has happened and this is after ESMO 2022, but then data from EV103 were reinforced at ASCO 2023 is the combination of infortimab, vidotin, and pembrolizumab. So we saw for the first time the data, I think they were presented by Jonathan Rosenberg at um, ESMO this past year. Uh, Shilpa Gupta presented data with now nearly four years of follow-up from EV103 from the dose escalation cohort A um, with EV Pembro. And this 
regimen is associated with really substantial response rate. Response rate from um, the study was 58, um, I'm sorry, 33% um, percent in the dose escalation um, cohort. The duration of response was 22.1 months. And now this regimen is FDA approved. Um, it got received accelerated approval based on um, a cohort K analysis from EV103. So there was updated data that were presented from that study. Um, I think this is gonna be a, a big contender in what happens in the frontline space for metastatic urethelial cancer. I mean, we just saw the data get presented recently also of, um, gosh, I'm blanking on the trial number of chemo alone versus chemo plus nivolumab for frontline um, bladder in cis eligible individuals, you know, this study was positive. So I think the treatment of frontline bladder cancer is really kind of rapidly evolving, you know? George, what, are, what are your thoughts about frontline? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like, Rena, this is once in a lifetime, I get to remember something which Rena doesn't, right? So <laughs> checkmate, checkmate 901 trial, with uh, EP uh, with uh, cisplatin gemcitabine plus minus nivolumab, we just saw the press release. We don't have the data uh, from the trial yet, but I heard that survival outcomes were quite significantly improved with addition of nivolumab. I think this field is going to be very exciting for us and for our patients, allowing them to receive therapies which are going to keep them alive longer without increasing toxicities. So um, that's for the front line. And, you know, you have the combination therapies uh, that we just talked about, various treatments and contenders. We talked about relapse disease. Where does these new therapies in urothelial fit within maintenance treatment that we've talked about previously? So I think that's a big question regarding maintenance. You know, the... Um... Uh, the phase three study of EV Pembro is, um, you know, comparing to cisplatinum or carboplatinum based regimens, but that study has a huge flaw because it does not allow for maintenance immunotherapy. Right. And so I think, you know, right now, the current standard of care is chemotherapy and maintenance of ulimab for people who are chemotherapy candidates, whether it be cisplatinum or, you know, a carboplatinum-based treatment followed by avulamab. I think the data for EV Pembro are provocative potentially for your chemo ineligible or uh, cis ineligible patient. And some may argue that a chemo ineligible patient is an EV ineligible patient because some of those side effects can be overlapping mm -hmm. with the neuropathy. I think we're going to have to wait and see the data from... Uh, the checkmate trial, because on that study, people are getting concurrent IO with chemotherapy, which right yeah. now is in the paradigm. But in essence, if you don't give chemotherapy in the frontline setting today, in 2023, there is no role for maintenance therapy. So if you go with non-chemotherapy first line for whatever reason, there is no maintenance, correct or no? Uh, I guess so. But like if you were to pick EV Pembro, that's going to be just continued EV Pembro until you progress. Right. So and as if then, you're getting maintenance therapy. <laughs> and if, if you don't pick chemo, then you're kind of pick, if you, and if you don't pick EV Pembro, there's a very limited role for IO yeah. monotherapy. Yeah. So then I don't really know what you're picking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Neeraj, do you want to tackle a couple of things in relapsed urothelial? You want to go back to prostate? Uh, we can go to prostate. Uh, okay. I mean, there is so much exciting data being presented all over. So we can continue this discussion forever. I like but I think I would like to uh, just uh, highlight two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rena had a, Rena saw like 100 patients today. So yeah. she needs to sleep more than me. No, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. No, yeah. It's getting dark. It's so dark in here. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Good lighting. <laughs> so I can, you know, uh, talk about two more like practice influencing abstracts for our patients. One is the one was presented by Dr. Soon, uh, abstract number 5045. And I have the titles and uh, abstract numbers lined up here. So don't be unduly impressed. And uh, what they did was they compared the lutetium PSMA, so lutetium 177 PSMAs, overall survival benefit in therapy trial and vision trial. And this is in the context of lutetium being largely unavailable for majority of patients, our patients, community doctors having to rely on those centers to access nuclear medicine doctors and all the obstacles they are facing uh, when they want to use lutetium 177. In this uh, context, I think the study is very important. So authors compare the benefit of lutetium 177 compared to the control arm in the therapy trial and the vision trial. Just for a viewer's recollection, therapy trial compared lutetium 177 versus cabazitaxel in therapy trial. Vision trial compared lutetium-177 versus literally a control which was substandard. Half of the patient got only bone strengthening agents and half of the patients got a novel hormonal therapy after failure on one or even two novel hormonal therapies. So again, nothing to criticize from the trial design perspective because you're going to doing a phase three trial you cannot really push patients to get chemotherapy in the control arm. You will never accrue uh, on that trial, practically speaking. So I'm not really, I'm just compare, I'm just putting the results in the perspective of what is happening in the real world and that other treatments are also efficacious out there. So interesting result was that the lutetium-177 performed pretty well, very similarly in both trials but there was no overall survival benefit of lutetium in the smaller therapy trial where cabazitaxel was the control arm versus control without chemotherapy in the vision trial. What is the message for our audience here today? In this highly selected patients who had high PSMA in the therapy trial, at least there had to be one lesion with a SUV of 20, one measurable disease. And all measurable disease, if I'm, I'm, I'm uh, remembering well, every measurable disease had to have a PSMA SUV of 10. In this highly selected patient population, where they did not allow any PSMA negative measurable disease and high PSMA disease all over, cabazitaxel performed pretty much as good as lutetium-177 from the overall survival perspective although lutetium-177 is associated with better PSA responses and progression-free survival from the other study, other previous results presented from this study. So my lesson from this uh, comparison from these two trials is 
First of all, lutetium-177 remains a valuable drug for our patients, but cabazitaxel is also a valuable drug, efficacious drug, and is probably as effective as lutetium-177 in these patients who have high PSMA disease. So we should not forget about cabazitaxel, especially in those settings where lutetium-177 is simply not available. Well, for actually, multiple I, 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 want, yeah. I wonder if the logistics, and, and, and Rana, you can comment on that. I mean, is the are the logistics much more complex with lutetium in terms of, in the community, non-specialized centers that, you know, this is maybe reassuring for uh, oncologists to use Kabazi? Well, I think Kabazi is a, we can't lose sight of the fact that it's a life-prolonging therapy and is highly effective for patients with advanced prostate cancer. And I would probably argue that the therapy trial, I mean, the primary endpoint for therapy was a PSMA response. The trial wasn't powered to assess overall survival differences between the two arms. So while there was no difference that was observed, I would say like it wasn't really powered to do that. But cabazitaxel is is certainly a highly effective agent compared to vision where the standard of care, I mean, it was best supportive care. I mean, for some people, they weren't even receiving any effective life prolonging yeah. therapy. Um, but I have to say, you know, I think people are going to figure out lutetium. Um, you know, the community is going to figure out lutetium. Um, there's a huge, not to say incentive, but there's a lot of appetite for getting it set up. There's a lot of uh, desire um, on part of the patients and on part of the clinicians. You know, those PSA responses, they're dramatic, they're real. Like it's, you know, there's not a therapy that can cause such a dramatic PSA response yeah. like that in the refractory setting. Like even with effective chemo that's life prolonging, I think, but you know, while PSA doesn't really matter, it's not, you know, you're not gonna live longer because your PSA drops per se, but there's something very um, appealing about that. Hey, sometimes you live longer with Provenge without even the PSA dropping. <laughs> exactly. There you go. If you believe the impact. If trial, you believe in Provenge. Hey, Some I, people I, call it voodoo medicine, but you know. I know. Neeraj, what else? I think the last one is I always like to talk about uh, our friend's abstract, Dr. Dan George and team from Duke. And they it, this abstract was very relevant in my perspective, 5015. Uh, they looked at uh, the, uh, there was, it was a prospective trial of apalutamide and abiratinol in black versus white patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So even though it is a very small study of less than 100 patients, parallel cohort, meaning uh, both uh, patients, whether they were white or black, they were treated with similar drugs and they were not randomized to each other but they were just accrued on two cohorts. So there are some caveats associated with this trial. But if you look at those 43 black patients and 50 white patients who both received abiratiron and apalutamide, I was quite surprised to see the preferential benefit seen among black patients versus white patients. So if you look at 12-month radiographic PFS in the MCRPC setting first line, and these patients had not received these novel hormonal therapies up front, the, the rates were 79% versus 51%. So 12-month radiographic PFS of almost 80% in black patients versus 50% in white patients. If you look at no PSA decline, for example, so it's very uncommon to see no PSA decline, but that's a really a primary resistant patient population. 
And it was present in 1% black patients, but 14% white patients with the same therapy. If you look at PSA decline of less than 0.1 nanogram, per, which we just discussed earlier during the podcast, 49% black patients versus only 28% patients achieved a 0.1, less than 0.1 PSA. So what is the message from this very relevant trial in my view, even though it was a short, small trial looking at a therapy which is not approved by the FDA, that it is time to, not, to do trials specifically in black patients who, which, which are using androgen deprivation therapy or deeper androgen blockade as the backbone. I think we just cannot, we have to stratify at least the big trials with black patients. So race can be a stratification factor in any trial which are using deeper androgen blockade, because I have a feeling that we may see drugs getting approved just for black patients. But Neeraj, I mean, you, yeah. you mentioned something important. There are many other big trials. I mean, you've ran a couple of studies that are very large, run and others, I mean, where uh, you know, you've know you used apalotamide and, and, and similar agents. Can you go back to these trials and, and see if you're really witnessing kind of similar observations in the cohort of uh, black patients in these studies? I can take that question. Unfortunately, big unfortunately, mm -hmm. word is big here. The representation of black patients is so poor in yeah. all industry trials. In fact, SWOC 1216, which was our trial, SWOC trial, we were able to accrue 10% patients who were black out of total patients. And that we could put in our manuscript, which is coming up very soon, that this trial accrued the highest number of black patients in the history of all metastatic hormone-sensitive wow. prostate cancer trials. Wow. So I think this is time that you stratify by race, at least black patients versus white patients in all AR signaling inhibitor trials. And do we know why? Like, I mean, is there a particular, you know, an underlying, you know, mechanism, for example, there's fewer resistant mutations? Like, has anybody looked deeper into why this observation is taking place? I'm not sure we know the answer to that question. You know, I think that certainly there had been data from Nima Sharifi's lab about HSD3B1, and what role does that play with regards to the resistance to abiraterone? And um, there's no data that exists about whether that alteration is less prevalent in African-American individuals. And maybe that's why they have better response. It's hard to really um, know. I think that we don't, um, unfortunately, you just commented on sort of yeah. our lack of uh, African-American individuals in clinical trials it's quite honestly even worse for genomic databases um, and sort of our ability to kind of capture the genomic alterations among um, ethnically diverse and um, racially diverse individuals is is quite poor. Um, and so, you know, I yeah. think that, the, I, I don't know what the right answer, I think there have certainly been some studies, actually NRG has been tremendous in this space. A lot of their trials, they sort of have around in general, a 20% enrollment of African-American individuals on a lot of NRG localized uh, black, uh, prostate cancer studies. So, but I think it's it's work that we need to be doing as a field. And I think work that also we can partner with industry on, because I think that, you know, we need to be able to support inst these institutions and support the delivery of care in 
not in less resources area, meaning well, we need to resource it yeah. better. And fascinating <laughs> yeah. observation. Actually, it begs also the question that some of these trials should open at institutions that serve and underrepresented minorities. Yeah. And, and there are certain locations, obviously, in the U.S. where the demographics might help in accruing patients uh, of the black race into these studies. So we've done a lot of these important grand uh, breaking prostate. We've done a couple of kidneys, a couple of urothelials. Rana, any uh, other uh, kidney or urothelials? Um, because I know you're getting tired yeah. after seeing. Oh no, no. I mean, this is great. Maybe, maybe the one. Oh, there's so many. There's so many great data, but maybe there's one other trial to kind of comment on, which was the five-year overall survival data from the Vesper trial. This was the trial that looked at dose dense, perioperative dose dense oh, yeah. MVAC. Early stage, early stage. Early stage, like early stage. So this is perioperative dose dense MVAC versus cisplatinum gincitabine. And the trial was actually designed during a time where, when we weren't really giving that much neoadjuvant chemotherapy and it allowed for the therapy to be given adjuvant or neoadjuvant. But as the trial accrued, actually the bulk of the therapy ended up being given in the neoadjuvant setting. We saw the three-year PFS data get presented at ESMO in 2021, demonstrating that in the intent to treat PAN population, looking at all perioperative strategies, there was no improvement in three-year PFS. But if you just carved out the people that got the neoadjuvant chemo, there did seem to be an improvement with uh, dose-dense MVAC. And then now we see the overall survival data getting presented um, that demonstrated in the in the subset that got neoadjuvant chemotherapy, dose-dense MVAC was associated with superior um, overall survival. So a five-year OS of 66% compared to 57% hazard ratio 0.71. So um, I think there were, you know, some, not say issues around this trial, um, you know, in, in, the con in the way that it was designed. Technically, the primary endpoint was not met, but in this subset of people that received neoadjuvant chemo, there seemed to be a, a strong a benefit to dose-dense MVAC. So I think that potentially with this data, there may be a predilection to want to give dose-dense MVAC in the um, neoadjuvant setting for people um, who are chemotherapy candidates and cisplatinum candidates. But that's probably the trial, the last trial to potentially end with, given that it was a... This is really interesting, though, because yeah. I bet you that a lot of community oncologists might actually view GC as much easier to give than dose density. Oh, yeah, MVAC, hands down. You know? <laughs> no, but I mean, I yeah. think it has practical implications. I mean, Neeraj, would you agree that, like, would that would that be, if a community oncologist calls you for a question, would you say use dose density MVAC? Yeah, I've rarely seen our community colleagues using dose density MVAC, rarely. Yeah. It's all gemses, even though we have all be always believed that for new adjuvant chemotherapy, it should be dose dense back. So I think these data will really help. Very pertinent yeah. data. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Anything else? I know we're at the top of the hour. This is probably the most effective hour we've done. Like we've done four or five prostate abstracts. We've done three urothelial, a couple of kidneys. I feel like we we did the, we we talked about early stage. We talked about early stage urothelial. And kidney cancer, maybe anything in kidney cancer in the adjuvant setting, Rana? Yeah, actually, yeah, we can uh, uh, updated data from Checkmate nine one four were presented by Bob Mozer, um, and so these were this study was looking at adjuvant nevo ipi in patients that were at high risk of relapse post nephrectomy. There were two parts to the study. You know, part A looked at nevo ipi versus placebo. Part B 
actually had uh, a, it was a three arm randomization, had a Nevo um, arm as well. But the focus here will be on part A. And um, essentially across all the subgroups, there didn't really seem to be any particular benefit. Now, what was really provocative, I thought, um, was in the tumors that were PDL1 positive there did seem to be a signal that those tumors seemed to derive benefit. The hazard ratio there in that subgroup was 0.4, the confidence interval of 0.19 to 0.84. So, um, you know, what are we going to do with this data? Unclear, you know, this regimen is not approved in the adjuvant setting. Um, I think there was issues with toxicity in the adjuvant setting. The ipilimumab dosing in this context wasn't what we were traditionally used to in kidney cancer with the three-week dosing. It was every six-week dosing, um, and th therapy was given for a six-month period. But, you know, the only subgroup that potentially seemed to demonstrate any benefit was the pdl one positive, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what may evolve from this trial or potentially future trials looking at this specific population. Should, should patient get placebo in the adjuvant setting? I, I thought you, you were more recommending Pembro after the uh, Pembro in the adjuvant setting or not really? Is it still placebo and appropriate control arm? I think it could be an appropriate control arm because I don't necessarily think that there's equipoise or not. I don't think there's indisputable, you know, agreement across the board that Pembro is the standard of care, you know, in this context, I think you'll find people that you'll find that there's kind of some disagreement. We haven't seen overall survival data yet, though the overall survival is looking good. The curves are separating, the data is still immature. Um, so I think we're going to have to see. Um, I think for trial design, I think most studies are being designed um, with the backbone of Pembro in the control and building upon that. But there's certainly some dispute in the field as to whether every single person should be getting adjuvant Pembro who's got, you know, high-risk high risk kidney cancer. Well, this was my best hour of the day. And I know that it's getting late on the uh, West Coast. It's dark and Rana had a very, very busy clinic. But despite this, she did appear on Healthcare Unfiltered. And Neeraj, I'm always grateful also for your time. Um, Anything we missed? Any final comments, final thoughts? Anything you'd like to uh, to share? I mean, how happy you are oh, being this here. This is great. And, this is, know. I couldn't think of a better way to spend my Monday night. I mean, hanging is, out with you guys. <laughs> I mean, I agree with both of this is, this you. Can is never airing... disagree. Probably noticed that both of us brought up abstracts, which are not, which may not have been really discussed other than like contact two trial and con contact three trial and so on. I tried to bring in many of the abstracts which are really practice influencing and uh, uh, should be used for our policy making also some of them or trial designs down the line so hopefully it will be it will be useful to our listeners yeah. it will be it it was uh, really it, this was extremely condensed and very helpful and i think listeners are going to enjoy getting this gu hour basically i mean what else can they power do power hour the there we power, go. The power hour of the GU gurus. Power hour. Neeraj Agrawal and Rana McKay on Healthcare Unfiltered. I cannot thank you enough. Always wonderful that you um, gave me time of your busy schedule. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Dr. Neeraj Agrawal and Rana McKay for being on today's podcast. Thank you for educating my listeners 
and my audience about what intrigued them at the ASQA 2023 meeting when it comes to GU abstracts in prostate, kidney, and urothelial cancers. Thank you so much for being with me on today's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to it, rate it, and let me know how I'm doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or send me an email at shadinabhan at outlook.com. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Socrates. I am the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. Until next time, take care.